We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to the second in a series of water cooler podcasts that we're calling The Director's Cut. It's a chance to call up other think tank directors in Australia and around the world and exchange situation reports and swap notes on our respective policy challenges. Oliver Hartwich has been in charge of the New Zealand Initiative since its formation in 2012 through a merger between the New Zealand Business Roundtable and the New Zealand Institute. He's a first-class economist, a graduate from Rohr University, Bochum, who began his career in think tanks with the Policy Exchange in London. He moved to Sydney in 2008, where he worked at the Centre for Independent Studies, and it's where I first came to respect his extraordinary policy brain and clear thinking. He joins me today from Wellington. Oliver, welcome to the Director's Cut. Yeah, hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Uh, of course, we have to focus, I guess, on the only subject that anybody talks about much these days, and that's that's the pandemic, that's the coronavirus. Uh, let's just swap notes first of all. Where, whereabouts are you in Wellington and what, what type of lockdown are you in, in and how long have you been in it? Okay, we are in a level four um, in Wellington. Uh, sorry, we are in a level two in Wellington, level four in Auckland. I was just thinking about how to translate that into something that Australian um, viewers, listeners, will understand. So level four is our strictest kind of lockdown. We had that in Wellington for um, about a couple of weeks. We had another level three week afterwards, and we have since come out into level two, whereas Auckland is still in the strictest form of lockdown, level four, and that is strict probably even by Australian standards. So when you're in level four, that means only supermarkets are open, um, no butchers, no bakers, nothing else open, no funerals. Um, you have to stay within your family bubble. You're not allowed to see anyone else. There are no events, uh, not even small events. It is the strictest kind of lockdown you can imagine. You're only really allowed to leave the house to maybe go shopping at a supermarket, um, maybe just get some fresh air, um, but only around your neighborhood or to get vaccinated or to get to, to a doctor if you're sick. But that's about it. So we had that for a few weeks in Wellington. The Aucklanders, they still have it and they still have it for at least another week. And um, it's been pretty tough here. Yeah, and to put you just to return serve, if you like, uh, I'm in I'm in Sydney. Of course, it different differs from state to state here, but in in, in Sydney, New South Wales, we've been under a, a, for us a very hard form of lockdown since the start of July. Uh, it's now what uh, I lose track, almost the middle of September. So you know, you tell me how many weeks are that is uh, is that ten weeks, eleven weeks? But and and we're likely to be this way, I think, uh, until October. The government at least I think has an exit plan. I want to talk to you about the exit plan in New Zealand, really. I mean, our exit plan is based around vaccination levels and that, that's fair enough. That's the measure they've taken. They had the Doherty Institute here do some modeling and they concluded that once we get to 70% vaccination rate, fully vaccinated, we can begin opening up the economy. 80% we can pretty much, as I understand it, although there's some some vagueness around it, get back to business as usual, at least for the vaccinated. There's some dispute here at the moment about to what extent a government could or should be able to discriminate, uh, and discrimination it is, against the unvaccinated. 
so that's where we are. I mean, at least I think here, Oliver, it, you know, it's 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 been grueling. It's been very grueling for some people whose businesses have been affected, people that have been into forced isolation, possibly people who live on their own. But there was a real change of mood here, I suppose, about three to four weeks ago when, uh, at least in theory, there was an agreement on this this national plan that we would get to 70, 80% vaccination and begin opening up. And of course, was followed certainly in state, the lockdown states in New South Wales and Victoria's vaccination rates have come up very quickly. Uh, have you got an equivalent uh, exit plan in New Zealand? There are a few differences between Australia and New Zealand. The first one is we never got an apology from our prime minister for the slow vaccination rollout. I think you had one from yours. Scott Morrison said he was sorry. We have never heard anything like this from Jacinda Ardern, even though our vaccination rollout was as slow as yours. The other difference is, of course, we don't have an exit plan. At least you have some sort of plan. Um, We don't have that at all. We only have the goal, of course, to all get vaccinated quickly. But we have uh, no magic number hanging above our heads saying that, okay, once you reach 70, 80%, this is what you can do then. So far, um, we had government ministers telling us that even at 80 or maybe 90% vaccination uh, status in the future, we might still have lockdowns. That was uh, the government line until about a couple of weeks ago. Today, actually, the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, she was on the television telling us that um, she thinks that future lockdowns are unlikely and once we're vaccinated, lockdowns would be a thing of the past. So that's a hint that the government strategy is slowly changing, but we are still waiting for a plan. We haven't seen it. Yeah, I guess they're like here, eventually the government's monked by reality, isn't it? Um, That idea, New Zealand, I remember, as, as happened in some states here, expressly made zero COVID its target, I believe. Uh, but now, I it, do I take it from what you said, there's an, uh, an acceptance, uh, or, albeit not an express acceptance, that, that zero COVID is unrealistic? I think there is a growing realisation in parts of the population that this target is unrealistic. I can actually tell you um, how New Zealanders think about it because the New Zealand Herald just had a poll on exit strategies and uh, that was uh, on the 1st of September, so it's fairly recent. And 46% of New Zealanders believe that we should persist with the elimination strategy even if we reach 70% vaccination levels. Um, I think it was about 38 or 39% saying that once we reach 70% vaccination, we should actually stop with elimination. And I think from memory, it was 13% saying we should actually get off the elimination strategy right now, whether we're vaccinated or not. So the population here in New Zealand is pretty much split in half. So half of New Zealanders believe that at some stage, at least, if not now, but certainly a little bit down the track, we should get off the elimination target. Whereas the other half of the population thinks, no, no, even once we're all vaccinated, we'll still continue with zero COVID. So that's the current state of play. But something is changing because I think the numbers would have been even more in favor of elimination had you had a similar poll about a year ago. And you can see that the mood is changing also in, for example, statements from Helen Clark. So Helen Clark, our former prime minister, she was on a public webinar last week. It's uh, since been released on YouTube where she herself said actually that elimination, while it's okay for the time being because we are not vaccinated yet, it will not be a sustainable long-term strategy and at some stage we'll have to get off it. 
So what I take from these public uh, um, statements now from people like Helen Clark, but also from what Jacinda Ardern told us today on Breakfast Television, um, there is a rethink. And the politicians are now preparing us for the inevitable change of strategy, which will happen once we are, or at least the majority of us are vaccinated. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the, the, uh, I, I think a similar process happened here with public opinion. We've moved the, the, the latest polling that, that we uh, we did at the Menzies Research Centre, we found it was about 80-20, so 80% of people accepted that we now had to you know, learn to live with COVID. I think that's the phrasing that we used, uh, as opposed to 20% who thought we should still persist with the lockdown. And uh, if you, you won't be no surprise, I guess, but if you separate that state by state, you found that in WA, there was a, a particularly large feeling that they should continue with the... Um, the lockdown towards zero COVID, uh, Queensland to a lesser extent, Tasmania very high. So in those states that are somewhat isolated from the rest, uh, there is that persistence of the idea they can get to zero COVID. But I guess, and this comes to New Zealand, it, it's looking increasingly unrealistic, isn't it? I mean, once once New South Wales, Victoria decide, okay, look, we can't control this, we're going to have to learn with it like flu, uh, then it's very hard here for some of those smaller states to imagine how they're going to carry on with a separate strategy. Uh, and certainly true with New Zealand. I mean, eventually, <laughs> New Zealand does have to come to terms with the fact it is part of a, 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 a an international world, you know, a globalised world in which travel is important, business is important, trade is important. Yeah, I think we're coming to that realisation. We probably have a similar mentality as WA. We're certainly... Uh an island or two big islands and we have a bit of that mentality and it was easy for us of course in the early stages of the pandemic to pull up the drawbridge and shut the border and say okay let the rest of the world have COVID we'll stay here and we'll protect ourselves from the virus but increasingly I think that is no longer a realistic option and we see that and of course what has changed is the availability of vaccines once you have a vaccinated population it's a completely different game because then you can safely reopen and you can go back to something resembling a more normal life, as we can see in the UK or Denmark. And um, in that sense, you can learn to live with it. What I would say was, um, I just submitted a column uh, to the New Zealand Herald today where I try to explain the thinking of these 46% who would like to keep us in elimination mode forever. And I think what's at play here is what economists call a sunk cost fallacy. So the idea is that we spend the last 18 months fighting the virus and trying to keep it out of New Zealand at almost all cost and um, celebrating our success, of course, when we achieved that for a while. But now people say, look, this was a massive effort, probably the biggest effort that we have collectively made in our lifetimes. And we spent billions on this. We accepted that we are separated from friends and family. We went through repeated lockdowns for our cities and regions, just as you did. And it is very hard for these 46% of New Zealanders to now say, and all of this should have been in vain, and now we are letting the virus in. Why did we do all of this for 18 months? This was an enormous cost to the country, to the nation, and we should preserve it. But that's, of course, what economists call a sunk cost fallacy. It doesn't matter what you did in the past. You have to now reevaluate the situation as it is today and figure out what, given today's circumstances, is the best option. And given today's circumstances, with the availability of the vaccine, of course, elimination is no longer the best option because, as I argue in my piece in the Herald, uh, 
there are so many risks in life that we take for granted and we, we don't reduce them to zero. And the best example is perhaps traffic. I mean, every time you go into your car, you accept that there is a small chance of death and you won't reach your destination. So still, we accept this um, risk because mobility is a high goal and um, it is a, something that we as a society value. And we are not taking every possible precaution. Otherwise, you could light every single country road. You could have a general speed limit of 30 kilometers per hour. You could only have five-star rated cars on the roads. We don't do any of this, even though it would theoretically probably drive our road toll to zero, but it's impractical and we are not doing this. And we take the same risk for drownings. We take the same risk for falling from ladders and we're not outlawing ladders or we're not outlawing homes, spa pools. So once, COVID is at a level where it's manageable, where we have vaccinations, where in the future we might have treatment for it, we can treat it like any of these other risks. And I think the reason why countries like the UK, or I think more specifically England in this case, um, and Denmark are now moving towards the next stage where they say, look, we can live with the viruses because in their circumstances, that doesn't sound cynical. If New Zealanders say, okay, let's live with the virus, you will have half the country screaming at you. What you mean is, will die with the virus. Well, that's a connotation that exists here because we were virus free. It's not a connotation that exists in Denmark or England because they are from the beginning of the pandemic. People have been dying with it because they never pursued elimination. They never spent much effort on eliminating that virus, keeping it out. But they had always had to live with it. And now with the vaccination available, living with the virus means actually a much reduced risk profile rather than, as in the case of New Zealand, going from absolutely no risk of encountering the virus to accepting some small risk. So I think there's a mentality difference that we have to um, understand because otherwise looking in from the outside to countries like New Zealand and Australia, especially from a European perspective, the Europeans looking into our countries would probably conclude we are mad with what we're doing, but they come from a completely different experience and background. That, that, that's right. Um, so I think in a sense, we understand one another. Uh, you, you, Oliver, I don't know about you, but I, I think I've learned a lot about the way public policy and public debate moves or doesn't move, the way governments move or don't move over the last 18 months, which has been, you know, unparalleled period for public policy, in my experience. Um, and, and here's the question. You, you mentioned the public feel this sense of a sunk cost, and they do. I think, and I've written and spoken about the politics of fear. Uh, you know, we often talk about the politics of fear as if it's something that politicians generate. Well, sure, they do, or they can fuel it. But when you have a level of fear in a community, as there is in New Zealand and Australia, and you can measure this again in the polls, you can see that COVID, coronavirus is something people are genuinely fearful of. Uh, then it seems to me that governments get boxed in, uh, even if they're looking at, you know, the data from Britain that shows that the Delta variant is not something you can control. Uh, they're, they're looking at the inevitability that you're going to have to uh, treat this more like the flu in, in some way. Uh, they're looking at the fact that if you want to open up the economy, then you have to, as you say, take risks. Even if they're doing that, uh, it's very hard for them to move the government's position from here to here without rubbing the public up the wrong way. And uh, it seems to me that, that governments almost get paralysed by that. Is, is that true 
of the Ardern government or are they much more out on the fearful side than the 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 general population? It's hard to say. I mean, what I see with the Ardern government in particular is um, a government that is extremely good at communicating its messages. I mean, that's probably the only area in which the Ardern government is world class. I've never seen a government that communicates so successfully and succinctly what it wants to communicate. And um, the prime minister delivers masterclass after masterclass in her daily press conferences. She's really good at that, scarily good. Um, at the same time, this government is virtually incompetent in managing practically every aspect of this crisis. We had um, a wonderful newspaper report in the Saturday Herald um, just last week by Kate McNamara, Google it if you are interested, about our government's attempts to procure the vaccine at the beginning of this year and actually late last year. And it was a complete shambles. When the whole world was trying to get vaccines into their countries and secure them, our government basically just passed it from government department to government department because they weren't quite sure what they're doing. They didn't want to pay much. They didn't want a premium. They didn't want to speed it up in some ways. And in the end, they decided to put all their eggs into one basket, which was the Pfizer vaccine, and basically said to the other manufacturers, we're not interested because we think Pfizer is probably the best and we want it at the cheapest price and don't care if we're waiting a bit longer because we have no virus in New Zealand, so it's not urgent. So that was basically the story. And I mean, that we are, with Auckland at least, still in this lockdown now, has a lot to do with our inability to get the vaccine into the country. And yet the public rewards them with still polling around 50% for Labour as if they had managed this pandemic really well. And the government actually, and this comes back to this wonderful uh, communication skills that our Prime Minister has in spades. So she is now trying to play catch up with vaccine deliveries because we didn't manage this process well at all. And so last week, she built up a lot of expectations that some new vaccines are about to arrive in the country. I know Australia did the same. So you procured yours from Singapore, I think, and Poland and the UK. And from memory, I think your government didn't make a big song and dance about it because basically you were playing catch up for mistakes that you made in the past. So our government did the same, except they actually celebrated their great successes. So each time there was a new vaccine announcement, the Prime Minister turned up at a press conference and said how she excited she was. She managed to secure 250,000 doses from the Spanish government. I mean, that basically is enough for two and a half days here. Um, but anyway, she was so excited. It was really intense negotiations with the help of the European Union. And now this plane has just left Madrid and I just checked it on my app on Flight Tracker and it will be in Auckland tomorrow morning. And I'm really excited. And then two days later, the same game again. And now we had confirmation, 500,000 doses from my friend, the Danish Prime Minister, Mette Frederiksen. It's on the way, I've checked it. So even disaster is turned into great achievement. I mean, I have never seen such fantastic political communication so far. This is fantastic. So first they completely screw this up, this whole process of vaccination procurement. And then when they're playing catch up, they're celebrating themselves for it. You can't make this up. And the public goes along. How wonderful is that? I mean, I suspect what's happening with, with those vaccine transfers, it's quite exciting, really, for those who believe in the free market. You're developing this global uh, market in, in vaccines where if a country is overstocked and, and, of course, with a short shelf life or the limited shelf life, uh, they can't keep them forever. They'll, they'll trade them with somewhere else. And if they're short, they'll buy them from somewhere else. I know it's a very imperfect market right now, but... 
it seems to be a much more of a free market solution rather than uh, or an international free trade solution rather than one that's engineered by governments. It is also interesting, actually, when you look at it from um, a political point of view. Um, Ardern's supporters always said when people criticized the government for not getting enough vaccine into the country early on, well, look, um, we are COVID free and actually there are other countries who probably needed more than us. And it is um, unethical to even compete with other countries trying to just secure as much of the vaccine pool for yourself. And we should rather give it to some island nations or some poor countries that can't afford it. And it is totally wrong to just bypass the official ways of getting it directly from Pfizer. You can't do this ethically. And so anyone who suggested that the government probably didn't quite get this right and we should have actually outcompeted a few others was immediately shouted down, especially on Twitter, saying, no, you can't do that. Totally unethical. And what are you talking about? Now the government actually comes in and gets these vaccines from Spain and Denmark. And the same people say, isn't that wonderful? Finally. So we secured this. And actually now we're getting that earlier than we thought. And it is an entirely partisan game on Twitter. And again, it just shows how great the government is at actually controlling the messaging. They have been wonderful at this. It's, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the greatest fan of this current government, but you sit there in admiration and look at their PR skills. It's just fantastic. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Going back to the vaccine rollout and and it's been imperfectly delivered in both countries, should we say. Uh, um, I, Scott Morrison at the very start of this crisis, very early press conference, I remember stood up and said, mistakes will be made. And I thought, well, that's a, it's a statement of the obvious, but uh, a, a brave statement for a politician to make. And of course it will. Um, and several times in this, Oliver, I've gone back to Friedrich Hayek and who talks, of course, about the problems of central planning. I mean, you move everything to a central bureaucracy or just a few people, uh, it's, you're never able to plan things properly. You don't have as much information as the market has, as the population has, so you can't make decisions. So for Hayek, I think there are two drawbacks with authoritarianism. The first is that if you restrict uh, power to a few hands and decision making to a few hands. One, you tend towards autocracy uh, and oppression, and uh, um, but secondly, you just get bad government decisions, uh, and there's been plenty of those. Uh, it just reminds me, though, of of what we we knew during the Cold War. You would have, uh, you know, from Germany, you would have been acutely aware that uh, p- planning, economic planning, was done very badly behind the Iron Curtain, um, because it was centrally planned. Um, can we draw that lesson out at least and say, let's learn that lesson once and for all and ne- never never go there again? 
yeah, yeah, no, we can see that. We can, we can see it in the management of the crisis. Um, in New Zealand, of course, the Ministry of Health is um, all over COVID. The problem with the Ministry of Health is it's a, it's a policy shop. So they develop legislation, they develop grand plans, but they never manage anything on the ground. In normal times, that is not the Ministry of Health's role. But suddenly they were in charge of keeping the virus out and organizing managed isolation and quarantine and hotels and all sorts of things. And of course, the ministry wasn't able to do that. So last year, the government actually then drew in the army because at least um, they knew how to protect and secure a managed isolation facility. So the army was pretty good at that. But actually, seriously, it should have probably been the Ministry of Primary Industries organizing all of this because they keep out all sorts of um, diseases, animal diseases, of course, um, quite successfully out of New Zealand. I mean, they are um, responsible for biosecurity and do a pretty good job at that. They are an operational government agency. Maybe we should have actually given um, Minister of Primary Industries um, the COVID management role would have probably worked better than the Ministry of Health simply because they had these management capabilities. Well, that, that that's interesting because it goes towards some work that we've, we're beginning to do, which is to look forward to you know, what sort of structures, what sort of arrangements we need to have in place for the next pandemic, right? So we're going to get it, get things better. We're going to do things better, we hope. And and one of the first things, conclusions we come to is, well, you, you take it out of the public health officials' responsibility. I mean, public health officials up until now have been there to try and help us to get better health. They've been nagging us about our drinking and sugar consumption, obesity, and all these things that are bad for us. That's their game, right? And that's almost exclusively what they were doing. And suddenly we were asking them in because they've got some knowledge of health or we think so to manage this. Uh, I, it completely, I mean, I'm not saying they've got irrelevant skills, but I'm saying there are many, many more skills that are needed. Uh, logistical skills, actuarial skills, economic skills, uh, border control skills, all these things, as you say. We've really, I think the the first lesson for us, at least, is let's set up a new agency, as they have in uh, Britain. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And actually, we've been having similar conversations here at the initiative. Um, in fact, we had conversations with um, Des Gorman, um, an emeritus professor of medicine from the University of Auckland, and Mari Horn, who used to be the Treasury Secretary here in New Zealand, and then for a while, CEO of the ANZ Bank. The two have written a paper together for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians um, journal, one of the journals, and argued exactly what you just said, namely that we should have a dedicated agency, that they should be independent of day-to-day -day politics, a bit more like a reserve bank would be, and that they should manage future pandemics and only future pandemics. And I think that's a very good idea. And actually, if um, you want another recommendation for a really good podcast in the future, have Des Gorman on your program. Des is uh, wonderful with his insights into the health bureaucracy here in New Zealand and worldwide. He's a consultant to governments around the world, and he, he would have some very interesting insights for you and for your listeners. Terrific. I'll make a note of that. We'll definitely do that because this is an area which I think needs more work. The, the other thing is, so, and, and in Britain, uh, of course, is exactly what Boris Johnson's done. Uh, it was being run chiefly by public health UK and Public Health England, uh, who do a pretty good job in some respects, in certainly in data collection, but he's now abolished Public Health England and set up the United Kingdom or the UK Health Security Agency, which is much more focused on 
dealing with this as a security problem rather than a health problem, which it, it is probably the best way. The, the other example which we picked out, and, and I'm sure you'd be able to fill in some details on this. First of all, the data, the, the, the absence of data, the carelessness with data, the inability to collate data here has been an enormous, one of the big drawbacks. It's given us less visibility than we needed. Of course, health data is, is, is the obvious one, but also there are sources of data on the economy, for instance, on the real time, Twenty, you know, watching the economy develop in real time, what happens to spending patterns and so forth, which we, we have been using. We could have been using a lot better to monitor the success of, of the interventions that we've made. But data seems to be the big one. And in Israel, they've set up, uh, they set up a new data agency from the start run by the uh, the Israeli Army Intelligence Force, uh, but the, off, the when you when you read into this, the the example people often come back to is the Koch Institute in Germany, uh, which is uh, you know said to be a, a a leader in the assembly and and use of health data. Have you been privy to that at any stage? Yeah, um, the Robert Koch Institute in Germany is responsible for pandemic management, um, rose to prominence, of course, in this crisis in Germany. The problem with Germany is, of course, it is a federal country, just like Australia, and a lot of the healthcare activities happen at the lowest tier, which is the communal tier, so cities and the health authorities, and then at the state tier, so state health ministers. The Robert Koch Institute, meanwhile, is a federal agency and they're in Berlin. And the biggest problem, I think, for Germany throughout this crisis has been coordination between the Federation, the states, and then what's happening at the city level and getting all the data transfers right. The, also, the, the other problem that um, Germany also um, noticed, of course, in the crisis is how far behind the country is technologically. You think of Germany as a modern developed economy, but actually a lot of that is built on a uh, well, I would have said 19th century infrastructure, probably a 20th century infrastructure, to be fair. But that public authorities in Germany actually communicate with each other via fax machine was a bit of a surprise, but that's happening regularly in the crisis when they're telling each other the infection numbers of the day via fax. I don't know when was the last time that I've actually received a fax. It must be about 20 years ago. But that's what's happening in Germany. So Germany, some things worked reasonably well. Germany also, of course, has a very good hospital capacity, especially in ICU, probably the most hospital yeah. beds in intensive care in the OECD. I think the number is about 48 hospital beds in ICU for 100,000 population. Compare that to Australia, I think you are at about eight. Compare that to New Zealand, it's about 4.5. And you see the differences in pandemic preparedness. One of the biggest problems for New Zealand, I think that's actually the real reason why our government is so hesitant to take us off the elimination approaches. They don't know how to handle this with our hospital system. The problem is we currently have about 950 people in this current outbreak. Doesn't sound much, of course, from an Australian perspective, you have more people infected each day nowadays. But in our case, the current outbreak is under a thousand people and yet our hospital capacity in ICU in Auckland is already stretched. Stretched to the point that we are actually shifting ICU patients from Auckland to Canterbury, Christchurch, um, and that Auckland Hospital have now called in support, uh, called, in, called for support 
from other parts of the country. So ICU nurses from all around New Zealand are now going to Auckland to help out. And they only have about three, four patients in ICU, COVID patients. So that tells you something. If we aren't even able to deal with an outbreak of under a thousand people, well, chances of living with the virus once it's circulating and once we have more regular outbreaks are relatively slim. Yeah, it, it has. Um, it's been like a stress test for uh, other arms of government, and you can see where they're wanting uh, in New Zealand. Obviously, the health service not not as much investment in health as there been here, um, and therefore you're not you're not so well equipped. Um, although it's ironic, isn't it, Oliver? Of course, all the money that the government has been throwing at, at this, uh, you know, it's costing in excess of a billion dollars a week to shut down New South Wales. Well, that means on two weeks, two weeks of that, you could build a new 500-bed state-of-the-art hospital as one like one that's just opened on the northern beaches. But that apart, yeah. It- we calculated that um, an extra $40 million would have got New Zealand a vaccine into the country as fast as Israel. <laughs> well, it does come back again to the fact that governments uh, struggle to do this. The, the, the other... Um, area where I think we've we've found um, debate moving is on the issue of privacy and 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 um, so what is it reasonable for the government to know about you so in a, a crisis like this is it reasonable that the government insists that you you take a picture of the QR code I don't know if you have that same system in New Zealand but you go into a shop or anywhere you, you click the QR code takes you through the government site you say here i'm here you tell the premier where you are you tell them when you leave right That's yeah, it's, not, it's not quite like that in new zealand i'm actually relatively relaxed about that um the way it is handled here because what happens is that the qr code is scanned uh, on your local phone it is stored on the phone only it's not automatically transmitted to the government and it will be automatically deleted from your phone after six weeks so i think the privacy issues have been handled reasonably well that's fine. Actually, I would say that the government probably could have gone further in making use of QR codes and better documentation. For example, I know how controversial this is in Europe, but I think it would be better to have a proper digital vaccination certificate. Because I think, especially considering our low ICU capacity at some stage in the future, we'll probably need such passports. And um, I had my first vaccination about um, two and a half weeks ago. And I was very surprised. All I got was a jab and a paper card. <laughs> there was a paper card that had my name and the date handwritten on it. There was not a batch number. There was nothing. Um, and then it only said, well, this is your record that you had uh, your vaccination. I thought, well, um, if, uh, if that was in Europe, I would now have a QR code on my individual COVID app with my name, my date of birth, the batch number, the vaccine type. Uh, the location, the physician, and a digital signature. And that would have been enough for me to now board a flight and travel across Europe. I mean, Qantas told us about a year ago that in the future they will only take passengers with full vaccination certificates for international travel. Well, I think Qantas would probably laugh at me if I turned up with my New Zealand vaccination card where I could actually handwrite my own stuff. Um, And I think in that sense, it would have been far better for the government to have prepared for that. So, so do you mean to say if the government wants to check if you've been vaccinated, it doesn't actually have a record? It can't go in and look up the equivalent of your Medicare number and say, yes, Oliver's had the jab? Well, actually, no, that, that you can. Um, we inquired uh, how we could get proof of our vaccination status and were told 
well, you can write a letter to the Ministry of Health and they'll probably confirm that. No, no, there is a record actually. I've got an, an app for my local GP and the GPs, they get all your vaccination details. So whenever you have a vaccination, you can actually see it in your app, but it's not a certificate. I can see what I had, but it's not enough to really prove it. Um, so I think this government, again, was almost caught by surprise that in the future we might need vaccination records. And now they're developing something and they've promised us um, it will be ready by Christmas. It's They're always playing catch up. And I, I don't understand why we have to be so late with everything we do. Why does everything have to be developed here in New Zealand? Why can't we just link ourselves into some other countries and just say, okay, we use your software. We had a choice at the beginning of the pandemic to use software for QR code scanning developed overseas. We could have just used it. No, we had to develop our own. We could have easily contacted the European Union and say, well, actually, you've got a really good software for your vaccination certificates. And it's not just EU countries using it. Some other non-EU countries in Europe are using the same software too. If that is going to become an international standard for air travel in the future, for example, well, why can't we link into your system? No, we have to develop our own software here. I just don't get it, especially when a lot of the stages of the pandemic, of pandemic management, we can already see happening in Europe and we know it's coming our way. Why do we have to wait until the last moment to actually come up with solutions that we know will be required of us in the future? Well, it goes back to that earlier point about this pandemic, stress testing, all sorts of policy areas. Uh, and on that, that area of digital government, so how far governments have progressed in, in digitizing services, in dealing with um, customers rather than just you know numbers of taxpayers, through digital technology, making every communication with government easier, more smoother. Because uh, it's been a, an experiment here. The state, of course, have got most done a lot on that and done, been investing in it heavily for the last seven or eight years with New South Wales, uh, Victoria, not so. Uh, and so you immediately saw this contrast uh, in track and trace that Victoria was still using the faxes. So I don't think they were using faxes, but they didn't have the digitized systems that they had in New South Wales. Whereas in New South Wales, you know, all the apparatus that was usually there to handle your driver's license or your Opal card for public transport simply turned over and used. And, um, you know, it's very effective up until the arrival of the Delta variant, which just simply infections were too large under Delta to for them to keep up with. But in other areas too, you know, at the federal level, uh, they've had reasonable success in using some of the, the tax office data, uh, which is more, you know, they've invested a lot in digitizing the tax uh, department. So great, they can use that with some of the payments, some of the real time monitoring. Uh, uh, so it's a patchy thing here. Obviously, we've got to do more. What about New Zealand? Um, went reasonably well, actually. I think if you look at, for example, how the government manages the wage subsidy for companies, that was one of the things that the government did really well because companies had to apply for that and found the money in their bank accounts just a few days later. Whereas I think in Australia, from what I've heard, it could take six, seven weeks until you got the assistance package from the government. So I think actually on some issues, the New Zealand government is not too bad, actually. They're, they're responding quite quickly. But on a more general point, just what you mentioned just a few minutes ago, it is a litmus test for society on so many levels. The pandemic reveals things about us that we didn't quite know before, whether we're prepared digitally, um, how we think about privacy, how we value freedom, what role we want to give government. I mean, that is the one thing that I find the most interesting about the crisis. You only really get to know a people in a country in times of crisis, how they respond. And some of the things, well, are positive, 
So you see um, when the prime minister here talks about be kind, be sa stay safe and be kind. Well, that's not just a slogan. Actually, New Zealanders are kind. They are good to each other in times of crisis. They they really help each other out. And I've, I think we've seen a great deal of that. And that's something to be proud of. That's, that's positive. At the same time, what it also reveals is how passive most people are and how willing they are to follow authority, how willing they are to just rally behind um, or rally around the flag, I think they call it in America, but here it's more rallying around the leader and all fall behind the government. Um, I would have always thought coming from Germany originally and having lived in Australia and now living here, that both Australia and New Zealand are essentially freedom-loving nations. Um, I mean, with a lot of English heritage, of course, British heritage, um, with a common law tradition, with a tradition of fighting for freedom rights going back to Magna Carta, and all of that basically distilled into our politics in New Zealand and Australia. And I would have never expected such an authoritarian turn of events that we have witnessed in the last two years. As a German in New Zealand, I am just flabbergasted, really, by what I'm seeing. Um, when we are now stuck here and we can't easily travel, when the border is effectively closed, and when the border will probably remain effectively closed for some time, when I hear that Australians cannot even leave their own country and accept it, unless you've got special permission from your federal government, well, as a German, it reminds you of something in, in Germany's past. It reminds you of East Germany. It reminds you of a country that built a war to stop its people from leaving. And that kind of stuff makes me nervous. I don't like it because it just brings up all sorts of really unpleasant connotations. But as it turns out, I'm probably the only one here thinking like that because of my background. New Zealanders think this is perfectly normal and why, why would you have to travel anyway? Except I guarantee you, I, I have a few German friends here and I've got a few German friends in Australia. They all say the same. They can't believe it. Practically anyone from Germany, but also from Eastern European countries, by the way, really interesting, um, who's experiencing what we currently go through here now, says actually this feels remarkably like 35 years ago back in, in Europe's East. And we would have never wanted to see that again, but actually everything feels like that. And even the reporting in the news, um, the six o'clock news, that's um, often feeling more like government propaganda, it has a whiff of what we had before in the Cold War on the eastern side of the Iron Curtain. Not comparing this, I'm not saying this is a police state, but some things make me feel extremely uneasy. Well, these are not trivial matters you raise. Um, I don't know if you saw it the weekend. Um, it used to be only third world countries, by the way, where their former prime ministers were harassed, locked up and punished. Uh, here, uh, our, our before the prime minister, Tony Abbott, was dobbed in for not wearing a mask outside where there's been... As far as I'm aware, nowhere in the world has there been any any number of cases transmitted outside. But anyway, there he was. Uh, he was fined 500 bucks, and 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 in his in his comments to the media afterwards, he he compared it to the Stasi. Um, and you know, I'm always very sensitive for moral equivalence, as I I dare say you are too. Uh, but I don't think it's unreasonable. We are moving to that when you get a situation where an Australian will dob another in not for, you know, being a drug dealer or a murderer or anything like that, just simply for not obeying a rather, in my mind, rather silly public ordinance. 
um, and the police are then re- willing to enforce it, the role of the police is, is, is changed in this crisis. So I, I share your pessimism, Oliver. Uh, I, I suppose the big, the big question is, though, once all this is over, can we put all this behind us and go back to just normal freedoms or will we forever have an inheritance of illiberalism and intolerance from this period? That's a very good question. I actually got the same question on a different podcast here with my friend Jordan Williams from the New Zealand Taxpayers Union. He he was asking the same question. My answer is unsurprisingly the same to you. I think we will not get our freedoms back because it has fundamentally shifted the um, balance of power between the individual and the state. The reason why I say this is because I believe in Robert Hicks' crisis and Leviathan thesis. So Robert Hicks, an American economist, economic historian, documented the growth of the state, especially in the 20th century. And the basic thesis was that in times of crisis, government grows. So you've got a pandemic, you've got a war, an economic crisis, and government is there to fix it, of course. And the government takes more resources to do that. Once the crisis is over, the government shrinks back. But it doesn't shrink to the previous level. It shrinks just a little bit, but not to where it was before. And you've got a ratchet effect. And so the crisis and Leviathan thesis was that um, a crisis actually makes Leviathan bigger. And each crisis makes Leviathan bigger. And I think if you look at the history of the 20th century, this is exactly what happened. But I think it still holds today. And it holds um, after the pandemic because we have now seen a government that was able to shift the balance of power towards itself, away from the individual, that was able to ignore individual liberties. And it is very hard to take that back. And you can see this in some politician statements where they say, okay, we've worked so well with some drastic measures now against COVID, why don't we try the same for climate change? So far, they're only speculating about it, but actually, why wouldn't they? Because it works so well and the population is basically compliant. Why wouldn't you have maybe just a temporary lockdown or at least a car-free day in the future just to save the climate? Works. The other reason why I say that, um, I think when you learn a certain pattern and when you learn that government can be quite powerful, in terms of crisis and achieve something like eliminating the virus for a while, you want to give government um, a greater role, or some people do want to give government a greater role, I should say, to achieve some other goals. And there is an historic example for that. And uh, I mean, you as an ex-Brit and I as an ex-German, um, I think we probably can talk about our own histories here. So my favorite example in all of this is 1945. And the contrast between what happened in Britain after 45 and Germany. So the British example, you know much better than me, but just to sketch it, Britain had won the war with a collective effort. Two months after the war, they kicked out Winston Churchill and elected Clement Attlee. Why? Because Clement Attlee promised the New Jerusalem. He promised to actually take exactly the means with which Britain had won the war and with which they defeated Nazi Germany to now build the peace, the new Jerusalem. And so they started actually nationalizing all sorts of things, industries, established a national health service, established a welfare state, introduced all sorts of draconian controls. But we know how the story ended after 30 years, Britain was bankrupt. Um, The IMF had to bail Britain out. There was the winter of discontent. There were um, four-day working weeks, there were power cuts. The whole thing was a complete disaster until the winter of discontent and Margaret Thatcher later took it over and cleaned it up. In the meantime, West Germany had overtaken Britain in GDP per capita terms by the late 1960s. 
But Germany had taken a completely different approach because in Germany, the experience was that the state was evil and the state was defeated and nobody had any trust in the state's power. And then they went for a liberal economist, Ludwig Erhard, to now run a free market approach to recovery. And that worked. So I think these two countries took, took completely different experiences out of handling their very different crises. One went down the liberal path, that was Germany. Ironically, the loser of the war became the winner of the peace. And in Britain's case, it was the other way around. And I think if you take this historical analogy and apply it to where we are in COVID, you can see where this is going. You can see that a lot of people in New Zealand believe that Jacinda Ardern, the government, saved our lives. They won. They won this battle against the virus. They also kept the economy afloat by printing a lot of money, by the way. And they have gained so much trust in the ability of the state to manage our affairs, to really get us through really tough times, that they now give it almost a blank check to achieve other things in the future. And from experience, from this historical experience that I just mentioned, we can see how this will end. And um, it will shift the balance of power towards the state, which we as classical liberals um, don't like in the first place. But it will also ruin the economy, which we as good economists, I think, also know from experience, um, because it doesn't work that way. Because the government is so hopeless at allocating scarce resources from experience that this grand experiment that we're now embarking on will also fail. So I am really nervous and I'm really skeptical about our long-term future in our two countries because we have seen such a vast expansion in the role of the state in this crisis. So Oliver, I can't believe we've got to the end of a, a, Thank you, a, a new lengthy discussion between you and I and we have not touched on the economy. Uh, and that's very relevant, of course, to this, this uh, issue we're talking about. Perhaps we'll save that for the next uh, director's cut. I'm hoping, as I said earlier, before we started recording, to get John Roscombe on with us, uh, the three of us, uh, and have a, a further discussion on this, a further swapping of notes. It's been very useful. Thanks for your time. I know you've got work to get back to. Uh, and uh, all the best with the, the policy work you're doing over there. And let's talk again soon. Thank you, Nick, and the same to you, and I look forward to the next recording. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you.